all of you. It's definitely good to be back with you again this evening, and I'm looking forward to our study this evening, specifically on the third angel's message. And so just by brief way of review, the, in this three-part ser- series, we started by looking at the first angel's message in week one, and then in the second week, we looked at the end of the first angel's message as well as the second angel's message, and then tonight we're going to look at the third angel's message. Here's what I hope has has been striking to you and what you've been able to see by studying these three angels' messages, and that is that these messages are for our time, and they are the most relevant possible messages that could be shared. And the first angel's message makes it very clear that these messages are to be given to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, or every language group, people group, ethnic group, whatever it may be, age group. These messages are relevant to every group um, based on the time that we are living in. And um, with the, the message of the three angels, we see that it has the everlasting gospel, which is the gospel that is so powerful that it can change us so that the righteousness of God is not simply declared, but revealed in our lives as Romans 1, 16 and 17 describes. And then we saw what it meant to fear God. We went through that study um, two weeks ago and we reviewed it a little bit last week, but the fear of the Lord is the, the beginning of wisdom is to flee from evil. Psalms 34 shows that we will have no guile in our mouths, just like the 144,000. Um, to give glory to God is to have faith like Abraham and whatever we do is for the glory of God. Um, and we saw that we're living in the hour of his judgment. That's part of the first angel's message. And we saw that Daniel, the book of Daniel, puts the focus of prophetic history between 1844 and the second coming. And the hour of God's judgment starts in 1844. And so the amazing thing is, is that the three angels' messages are the messages for our time, specifically from the time of 1844 to the second coming, the third angel's message especially is the message for our time to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. And then we're reminded that we are to worship him, and that connects to the Sabbath message, which is in distinction to worshiping the beast and receiving his mark. And then we saw in the second angel's message that Babylon is fallen, is fallen. There's two falls to Babylon. The first fall is with the Roman Catholic Church centuries ago as they changed Sabbath to Sunday, as they instituted confession to the priests, among other many other traditions that go against Scripture. And then the second fall of Babylon was the fallen Protestant churches. They are the, the daughters of the mother harlot, and they fell in the summer of 1844 when they rejected the preaching of the second angel's message. So that's just a brief summary of the, the first and the second angel's messages. Um, so we're going to start now by looking at the third angel's message. And this is starting in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 14. And I should mention again, remember that there's three sections to the book of Revel- or chapter 14 of Revelation. That is that the first five verses describe the 144,000, verses 6 through 12 describe the three angels' messages, and verses 14 through 20 describe the harvest. And it 
it's put together in that pattern because what you see is that you have 144,000, a special group who will stand on Mount Zion with the lamb. They are produced by the three angels messages. And what chapter 14 is, is bringing out is that when the three angels messages produce the 144,000, we will have the harvest, which is the second coming. So let's look now at the third angel's message, starting in verse nine. Notice what the Bible says. And the third angel followed them, saying, If any man worship beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So that's verses 9 through 12 of Revelation 14. That is the third angel's message. Now, what we see right off is that the third angel follows the first and the second angel with a loud voice. And the message is very clear. If any man worship the beast in his image and receive the mark in his forehead or in his hand, you're going to drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture. Now, before I get into this too deeply, um, a lot of times the Seventh-day Adventists, we focus on receiving the mark of the beast and receiving the outpouring of the wrath of God, and we neglect the other part of the third angel's message, which Ellen White says in Review and Herald, April 1, 1890, that the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message in verity, and we're going to talk about that. But some people then like to focus exclusively on the element of justification by faith being the third angel's message in verity that they forget to talk about verses 9, 10, and 11. And these verses aren't here by accident. They're an important part of the third angel's message. Now, I promised you last week that I'm going to show you something amazing about the third angel's message, and that's going to be when we get to verse 12. But we need to look at these first three verses out of the four verses in the third angel's message to see just why this is so important. Remember, the three angel's messages are announcing that the hour of God's judgment is come, And the hour of God's judgment, based on our study of the book of Daniel, begins in 1844. And in the hour of God's judgment, one of the things that is going to be decided is going to be who will worship God or who will worship the beast. That's going to be really one of the final determinations of the hour of God's judgment. You know, the judgment of the dead, which started in 1844, That doesn't take very long for God to finish. But one of the key things that needs to be finished is who is worshiping God. And we see that those who worship God, based on the first angel's message, will worship him that made heaven, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. That is a direct connection to the fourth commandment and the Sabbath message. So those who worship God will be Sabbath keepers. And we saw last week that in order to keep the Sabbath holy, men must themselves be holy. That's the Zara of Ages 2.83. So there will be those who worship God, who will receive the seal of God, 
And the third angel's message says, if any man worships the beast and his image. Now the beast is the Roman church state power. And the image, when you study Revelation 13, is the union of church and state. And the beast and the image to the beast brings out a false system of worship. And we did a whole study on the mark of the beast a few weeks ago showing that that Sunday is the mark of the beast. And so if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or, or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. Now, there are some key things going on here. Again, at the end of the day, it comes down to who do you worship? Do you worship God or do you worship the beast? Now, most people say, of course I worship God. You talk to the people who worship on Sunday, and they believe that they are worshiping God. And those who are living up to the life that they have, that is true, which is why the last message of mercy in Revelation 18 says, come, about, come out of her, my people. Now, the problem is, is that when Sunday worship is enforced, that becomes the mark of the beast. And if you go along with Sunday worship, that becomes, that you then receive the mark of the beast. If you consent to worshiping according to the dictates of the beast, we're not to worship the beast or his image. We are not to go along with the union of church and state. We are not to go along with a false day of worship proscribed by the state and there will be some who receive the mark in their forehead those are those who actively advocate for this day of worship but there are going to be many who go along with this day of worship who know in their heart and in their mind that this is the wrong day, but in order to save their temporal situation, they will go along with this law, and that will be those who receive the mark in their hand. You know, Ellen White says in Great Controversy, page 608, she says, as the storm approaches a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message, but who have not been sanctified by obedience to the truth will abandon the ranks and join the ranks of the opposition. And then they will become the most bitter enemies of God's people. You know, it's interesting. Those who have not been sanctified by obedience to the truth. And then remember, Sabbath is a sign of our sanctification. So if you're not living a holy sanctified life, you're setting yourself up to receive the mark of the beast and, and abandon God's people. So now here's the thing. When the mark of the beast issue comes, and you see this in Revelation 13, we see this here in Revelation 14, you read about it in Great Controversy. When it comes to all human appearances, you will lose your life and your money and your career and your possessions, and you will lose everything that you have if you don't go along with the mark of the beast, with Sunday worship. And from a human standpoint, 
it will defy logic and reason to not go along with the mark of the beast. You may wonder how Seventh-day Adventists could go along with such a thing when we've known for years, ever since our inception as a movement, that Sunday is the mark of the beast. And yet many will go along with it. And the, the bottom line is, is that if you are used to compromising, if it will benefit you personally and will be for the benefit of your family and for you financially and for your career and so forth, you know, God says this, but he'll understand if I compromise on this one issue. You're setting yourself up to receive the mark of the beast because when that crisis comes, the logic will go, well, surely God wouldn't want my family to go hungry. And how would I be able to provide for them if I don't go along with this law. And so that is what will set up many to receive the mark of the beast. Now, it will seem in the immediate sense, the logical, rational thing to do, but it's going to go against what God says. Here's the problem. Those who receive the mark of the beast, verse 10 makes it very clear, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. Now, if you want to know what the wrath of God is, which is poured out without mixture, you simply go over to Revelation chapter 16. And in verse 1, it says, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. Now you can continue to read. We're not going to do a whole study on the seven last plagues. But initially, those who go along with the mark of the beast will temporarily retain the ability to buy and to sell and to work and to have food on the table and all of that. But when probation closes and the seven last plagues start to be poured out, if you have the mark of the beast, you will receive the wrath of God without without mixture. A lot of times when God pours out his judgments now, and he does, there is mercy mingled with that judgment. But when the seven last plagues are poured out, there will not be any mercy mingled with that judgment. And so one of the reasons, again, and I mentioned this last week, why God has given us this message is that he wants us to call as many people out of Babylon as possible so that they do not receive the mark of the beast. Now, if you go to the loud cry message, notice this, Revelation 18. You know, the earth is lightened with the glory of God, starting in verse 1. And there's this loud cry that says, Babylon is fallen. When you get to verse 4, it says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not her, of her plagues, for her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Now listen, remember from Revelation 13 that the dragon gave his power, seat, and authority to this beast who is going to receive the outpouring of the seven last plagues. God doesn't want his people to receive these plagues. And scripture describes this time as God's strange act. But remember, you might be thinking, man, this isn't 
fair of God to pour out these plagues upon his created beings? How could he do such a thing and be a God of love? Just remember that those who receive the seven last plagues align themselves together to make war against God's people. Revelation 17 says they make war with the Lamb. And their intent is to kill God's people. So the seven last plagues is God's way of preventing the wicked from destroying his faithful saints. And it's a righteous and just thing for him to do. And so he wants as many people as possible to not receive the mark of the beast. Um, He wants as many people as possible to not try to kill his people, his saints, those who keep the commandments of God. And so that's an important facet of the third angel's message. The third angel's message is given with a loud voice saying, if you receive the mark of the beast, if you worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in your forehead or in your hand, you will receive the wrath of God poured out without mixture. Now, here's the interesting thing. The wrath of God poured out without mixture is poured into the cup of his indignation. Now, you think about this. Jesus drank that cup. In Gethsemane, he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So Jesus has has drunk of this cup, and he has made it possible that we don't have to drink this cup. But Jesus drank that cup so that we could be saved. But sadly, many will choose to receive the mark of the beast, and they will receive the outpouring uh, of the wrath of God. Um, And so they shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, verse 11 has confused some people. In verse 11, it says, The smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. They have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Now, there are those who use verse 11, ironically enough, in the Sunday-keeping churches to try to prove that there is eternal hellfire that never goes away, that the wicked will burn forever and ever and ever throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. And I want to take you to a passage in Scripture that John the Revelator is making reference to you so that you understand the context. And this is found in Isaiah chapter 34, verses 5 through 10. And this is describing the destruction um, of Edom. The Edomites were the descendants of of Esau. Notice how Scripture describes this. This is Isaiah 34, Verses 5 through 10, and this is God speaking. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Idumea and upon the people of my curse to judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord hath a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Idumea. And the unicorns shall come down with them, and the bullocks with the bulls, and their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust made fat with fatness. Now notice, this is where things become especially relevant. Picking up in verse 8. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. And the streams thereof shall be turned into pitch, and the dust thereof shall into brimstone, and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. Now notice verse 10. It shall not be quenched night nor day, 
the smoke thereof shall go up forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Notice now the word, the term item is, is used to describe um, the Edomites. Um, and the Edomites were being punished for their, um, for their attacks on God's people. But notice how it's, it's mentioned in verse 10. It says, it shall not be quenched night nor day. The smoke thereof shall go up forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. Now, the territory of Edom was to the east of Israel. And obviously, the smoke isn't still ascending from that territory. That simply means that the destruction was permanent and forever. And that's what Revelation 14 verse 11 means when it says the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. The effect of their destruction, the effect of the destruction of those who receive the mark of the beast is forever and ever. Um, some have also pointed out that in the book of Jude, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is described as being destroyed with eternal fire. Um, and that's that's a decent argument as well, although um, the word eternal is a bit different than forever and ever in Revelation 14. But Isaiah 34 and Revelation 14 are a clear connection. Now, that's as much as I'm going to say. Well, I'll just say this again. I mentioned this last week. I'll mention it again this week. We talked about the distinction between those who receive the seal of God versus those who receive the mark of the beast. God calls for us to worship him, but we have a voluntary voluntary choice to follow him. We are not coerced into worshiping God. The mark of the beast is coercion where they say, if you don't worship the way we say, we're going to take away your ability to buy and to sell and we'll find you and we will imprison you. And finally, they will threaten you with death. That is coercion and that is not God's character. And so those who go along with that receive the mark of the beast, and ultimately God must destroy that which goes against his character of love. So I also mentioned this, the ironic thing about the Babylonian gospel is that the Babylonian gospel says we will be saved in sin and will continue to sin until Jesus comes. And as the world falls apart, the churches of Babylon will come to the state and say, our gospel doesn't work. We need you to enforce a law that will put people back in church so that we can turn society back around. And yet God's people who have the seal of God will say, you can't enforce the worship of God and, and the creator God. It must be a voluntary choice. And by the way, come out of her, my people, because that Babylon sins reach heaven with the Sunday law worship God voluntarily and receive his seal. So you will have the seal of God versus the mark of the beast. And that's what the third angel's message boils down to. So the mark of the beast is the church admitting our gospel doesn't work. We need to enforce a lot of get people into church. Whereas God's people are a demonstration that God's way and having faith in his power can produce his righteousness in our life so that we are a demonstration to the unlooking universe. Now, verse 12 is the conclusion of the third angel's message, and it is a demonstration that you do not have to receive the mark of the beast and that it is not inevitable. Notice Revelation 14, verse 12, and this is one of the, the famous verses in Scripture. This is sort of our 
marching cry or battle cry of Seventh-day Adventists, Revelation 14, 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, this is a remarkable verse because it's in the setting and in the context of the time in which a Sunday law has been passed and the wicked have received the mark of the beast in their forehead or in their hand, and they are going along with a law that says it's okay to worship on a day that God has not ordained as holy. It's a after the beast and receiving the mark and the image to the beast. Despite all of that, there's a special group of people described here where it says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, it's interesting. When you go back to Revelation 13, in verse 10, speaking of the beast's power, it says, He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So here's this connection. The beast power will try to lead you into captivity by following a law that goes against the law of God. And he will try to kill you with the sword to go along with this mark of the beast law. And yet here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Here is a group of people who will not go along with this law, even at the pain of death. So when it says, here's the patience of the saints, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The context is very clear. These are a people who are willing to die for their faith. But it's interesting, it goes a lot deeper than this, and this is where I want to spend the rest of our study. These three components of patience, obedience, and faith. Now, the word patience can also be translated endurance. Here is the endurance of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. These three components, faith or, or excuse me, patience or endurance, obedience, and then faith, are three special characteristics of the righteous saints or of the righteous last generation who will be alive when Jesus comes. And they are the first fruits of the harvest for which Jesus will come to receive. You know, Mark 4.22 says that when the harvest is ripe, immediately he putteth in the sickle. So it's not as if the harvest has been ripe for the last hundred years and we're just trying to win more souls to Adventism. No, Christ doesn't have a first fruits of 144,000, that special group of people that are ripened yet so that he can come. And so this special group of people who have the patience of the saints who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, that's what he's waiting for. So what is it about this special group of people that has such a profound character? Well, I want to take you through a few things. And I want you to start, I want you to go to John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. John chapter 24. And I'm going to tell you, well, I'm going to read these verses and then I'll tell you what we're going to do here. John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come 
that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall unto the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that his death is the seed for the harvest. Because Jesus is saying, my death, or the, the hour has come that, that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, when he speaks about being glorified, he's speaking of his death on the cross. And he's saying that my death is like a corn of wheat or a seed of wheat that will fall into the ground and die. But when it dies, it will bring forth a harvest of wheat. Now, the final harvest takes place at the second coming of Jesus. And this is what's amazing to me. So Jesus is saying, my death produces a harvest. Now, certainly you can say that those who have been righteous before the cross, even we think of, of all the heroes of faith, starting with, with Abel and Hebrews 11, and you go through Enoch and Noah and Moses and Elijah and all of the heroes of faith um, that are, are mentioned, Abraham, that they're, they're part of the harvest, absolutely. But the, the 144,000 are the first fruits of that harvest. And so Jesus is saying, my death is like a corn of wheat that is planted in the ground and dies. But then that seed comes up out of the ground and will produce a harvest in the likeness of the seed that was planted. And as I said in Mark 4, when the harvest is ripe, immediately he will put in the sickle. Now, Mark 4 also says first the blade, then the year after that, the full corn in the year. So the Christian can be perfect at every stage, but there is a maturity that God is looking for. And the maturity is the character of Jesus, especially as he is hanging on the cross. So here's what I'm going to show, show to you. And this to me is very profound. And this is what gives meaning to me personally and what gives me purpose as I behold Christ. This is what I desire and what I pray for and what I plead for. What I pray for and what I plead for is that Christ and his character as he's hanging on the cross, that's the seed that he planted so that he could produce a harvest after the same kind. My prayer is that that harvest would be seen in my life. And I hope that you will have that desire as well. So here's the amazing thing. When you look at these three special characteristics, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Patience or endurance, obedience and faith. Those three special qualities we can prove were the character of Jesus as he's hanging on the cross dying. We can prove that that's the seed that was planted, and that's what we're going to do now. So let's go now to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And the first thing we're going to look at is this character of having patience or endurance. Now we know... Um, that Jesus obviously had patience. But notice how Hebrews describes this, starting in verse 1 of Hebrews 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now that word patience in Hebrews 12 verse 1 is the same word in the Greek as Revelation 14 12, and it can also be translated endurance. So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And we see that this race that has been set before us is to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us or ensnares us so you know i can say to each one of you who are listening to this study tonight each one of us has a besetting sin that easily ensnares us for men it might be lustful thoughts or looking at things on the computer or other issues that may pop up in your life for women it may be a desire for vanity and for looking like the latest fashionable thing that comes along. There's any other number of sins. It may be pride. It may be arrogance. It may be bitterness. It may be lack of forgiveness. There may, there's some specific inherited tendency that you may have cultivated that is a besetting sin. And we are called to lay aside these things and run with patience or endurance the race that is set before us. And you may say, how can I run with that kind of endurance where I lay aside these sins. Verse 2 shows us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now let me say this. A lot of times we compare ourselves among ourselves and the scripture says that is not wise because we say, well, look, I realize that I kind of have a bit of a grumpy attitude issue and I can be a little bit proud and yeah, sure. I might have some lustful thoughts from time to time. And yeah, I might have some vanity in the way I put on my appearance from time to time, but you know what? I'm not as bad as the alcoholic down in the gutter or the people that I see at church who I know are living double lives. I'm not as bad as that. So God's not going to, make a big deal about my sins. But the Bible says, no, 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 don't look at anybody else. The Bible says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, now get this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now get this, the word endured is the past tense version of patience or endurance. Jesus endured the cross, and the 144,000 who overcome the beast and the they have the same degree of patience or endurance that Jesus had as he endured the cross. And so Jesus is the seed planted he endures the cross, and he shows you what it's like to demonstrate patience or endurance. And he, he's the one who, in Gethsemane, is saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's sweating drops of blood. He gets spat upon. He gets scourged three times where he's whipped 39 stripes, which is almost enough to kill him. And then he's hanging on the cross with nails through his hands, and his heart is breaking as his disciples are even ashamed to be around him. And as he sees his mother, mother's broken heart. He endures all that. Now listen, when it says, here is the patience of the saints, this is not some little, wow, good job, guys. You learned how to be patient when breakfast was running five minutes late, or when you were running five minutes late at work. Good job. You have patience. Ah, hey, that's a good start. But no, when it says, here is the patience of the saints, 
This is saying, here is a special group of people who, just as Jesus was facing death on the cross, endured patiently the suffering that he experienced. Here is a group of people who patiently endured a death decree and remained faithful and didn't lose their Christian experience and maintained the fruits of the Spirit during that challenging time. Here is the patience of the saints. And Hebrews goes on to say, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest he be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. Jesus did. Jesus resisted unto blood, even unto the death of the cross. He endured the cross. And what God is saying about his special last day people who have the patience of the saints, he's saying, I will have a people of character maturity who have the degree of patience or endurance that Jesus had on the cross. Jesus planted that seed of wheat while he was dying on the cross, and it will produce a harvest at the end of the world where there will be a people through whom the earth is lightened with the glory of the character of God, and they will have endurance. No matter what the trial, no matter what the issue, because they have learned to look unto Jesus, they won't be moved. You know, I I just want to make a challenge to each one of you. We look to ourselves and compare ourselves among each other too much. And we say, well, at least I'm not as impatient as those people. I mean, I kind of lose it a couple times a day, but man, they're impatient every five minutes. I'm not that bad. No, stop comparing yourselves to other people and start looking unto Jesus on the cross as he endured the cross. And the other amazing thing is it says he endured the cross for the joy set before him. And the joy that was set before him was the harvest of those who would be saved, that the seed that he planted would produce a harvest in the likeness of his character. And the joy that is set before us is of being with Jesus in the kingdom and of having his character. So when it says, here's the patience of the saints, that's a big deal. That is saying, here is a special group of people who endure the way Jesus endured the cross. And if you ever get tired of being around people who get on your nerves, consider him. Because you have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. So that's a powerful point. Now, not only did Jesus demonstrate patience or endurance on the cross, he also demonstrated obedience. So it says, here's the patience of the saints here, they that keep the commandments of God. Clearly, Jesus lived an obedient life. Can we show from Scripture that Jesus was the demonstration of obedience? on the cross. Well, interestingly, we understand that the lamb was to be without blemish and without spot, meaning that the lamb had to be perfect. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, it says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot. Now that word spot can also be translated fault, offered himself without fault to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So Christ offered himself without fault as he died on the cross. And then we go to Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7. And by the way, when it says Christ offered himself without fault, the 144,000 in Revelation 14 are without fault before the throne of God. Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, 
but a body hast thou prepared me. So Jesus is saying, a body has been prepared for me to be a sacrifice on the cross. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Now notice verse 7. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Remember, Jesus says, not my will, but thine be done. And he was given a body to be a sacrifice on the cross. Well, what does it mean to do the will of God? Paul here in Hebrews is quoting directly from a messianic psalm in Psalm chapter 40. And I want you to go to Psalm chapter 40 now. And we're going to pick it up in verse 6, and you're going to see that it's a direct quote here. Psalm chapter 40, starting in verse 6, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened, burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Now notice verses 7 and 8. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. So notice what this is saying. Psalms 40, verses 6 through 8. Jesus is saying, I came with a body prepared for me to do the will of God. And and Psalms 40 makes it very clear what the will of God. He says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Yea, or yes, your law is within my heart. So Jesus, as he is dying on the cross, his body is a sacrifice. He's offering himself without spot or without fault because he delights to do the will of God and the law of God is in his heart. So as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he is the perfect embodiment of an obedient human being. Yes, he is God, but he's also man. And he is the perfect embodiment of an obedient human being of whom God's law is written in his heart and mind. Now, the amazing thing is, is God is saying to his last day people, I will write my law into your heart and mind. That's the new covenant. And from 1844 to the second coming, Jesus goes into the most holy place in 1844. The law of God is found in the Ark of the Testament. And God is saying from the most holy place, Christ, the high priest, is going to write his law into your heart and mind. That's the new covenant life. That's And Jesus lived the new covenant life because the law of God was written in his heart and mind, and he delighted to do it. Now, you know, I meet some Seventh-day Adventists who are like, man, this law, it's kind of like legalism. I guess we just kind of have to to do this to, to go to heaven. But, man, it sure would be nice if I could have more than one woman in my life. And sure, it would be fun if I could have lust and and covetousness, but I'll just kind of act like I don't really want to do that because I would look bad among other Christians. No, are you kidding? That's not how Jesus lived. Jesus is saying, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Yes, your law is in my heart. I I delight to follow God's law, which is a transcript of God's character. And God is saying, that Jesus on the cross, he had this body that was prepared for him to be a sacrifice. And that body that was prepared to be a sacrifice was offered like that perfect lamb without blemish or without spot or without fault. He was the embodiment of a commandment keeper. So this is the amazing thing. Jesus on the cross demonstrates endurance or patience. Jesus on the cross demonstrates obedience. But not only that, we see here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. And so, by the way, so I'm, let's make this clear. Those who keep the commandments of God have not received the mark of the beast. They're not going along with Sunday worship. They are Sabbath keepers who stick to the Ten Commandments 
And as we saw last week, in order to keep the Sabbath holy, men must themselves be holy. So they're not just Saturday keepers. They are holy Sabbath keepers who have lived holy lives and keep all 10 commandments. And the Sabbath is a sign of a sanctified life. So just like Jesus endured the cross, the 144,000 endure the mark of the beast crisis. Just like Jesus demonstrated the perfect life of obedience while hanging on the cross, the 144,000 through the power of God will live an obedient life even when they are facing death, just as Jesus faced the death of the cross. Now, the last point is that it says, here's the patience of the saints here. They that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So the 144,000 are going to have the faith of Jesus. Can we show that Jesus had faith on the cross? And so here we go. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And not to harp on Bible versions too hard here, but some Bible translations mistranslate to say, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's not that. It's by faith of the Son of God, by the faith of Jesus. So I am crucified with Christ. Jesus died on the cross. And as I give my life to him, I am crucified with him. I am surrendered to him fully. Now Christ lives in me. And the life which I live in this human body, in this human flesh with the mind that I have, I now have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you. Christ lives in me. I now have his mind. And the life which I live, I exercise the faith of Jesus because his faith is in me. And the only way I can exercise the faith of Jesus is to be crucified with Christ. Now, the implication then is from Galatians 2.20 is that if I am to live by the faith of Jesus when crucified, that means that when Jesus was cru crucified, he must live by faith as well. Because when I am crucified, I live by his faith. When he was crucified, he lived by his faith. Now, let's look at a couple of other points um, to make this um, even clearer. I'm going to read you some statements from Desire of Ages, page 753. This is Desire of Ages, starting on page 753. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. So interestingly, notice, hope did not present to him coming forth a conqueror. He could not see through the portals of the tomb. So the only way he would be able to see through the portals of the tomb would be through faith. Now you go ahead three pages to page 756 of Desire of Ages. It says, suddenly the gloom lifted from the cross, and in clear trumpet-like tones that seemed to resound throughout creation, Jesus cried, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. 
a light encircled the cross, and the face of the Savior shone with a glory like the sun. He then bowed his head upon his breast and died. So notice, he couldn't see through the portals of the tomb, but he speaks with this message of faith that is finished. I into your hands, I commend my spirit. Ellen White goes on to say, amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. In those dreadful hours, he had relied upon the evidence of his father's acceptance heretofore given him. He was acquainted with the character of his father. He understood his justice, his mercy, and his great love. Now listen to this. By faith, he rested in him whom it had ever been his joy to obey. And as in submission, he committed himself to God. The sense of the loss of his father's favor was withdrawn. Now listen, by faith, Christ was victor. So Christ demonstrated faith on the cross even when he couldn't see through the portals of the tomb. That's the faith of Jesus. Now, one of the things that's worth mentioning, if you go to the message to Laodicea in verse 21, Jesus says, to him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Now, how do you overcome? 1 John 5 verse 4 says, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So Jesus is saying to Laodicea, you can overcome as I overcame. And scripture says the way we overcome is through faith. The only way we can overcome the way Jesus overcame is to have the same faith that Jesus had. Jesus demonstrated very clearly his faith while hanging on the cross where he could not see through the portals of the tomb. And by faith, he relied on the evidence that his father had given him prior to his experience on the cross. Because on the cross, his feelings are saying it's over. Sin is so offensive that the father will never take you back. You're not going to come forth from the grave a conqueror. You've accepted sin, and the Father wants you to be a sacrifice for humanity so that they can be saved. But what you've done is so offensive, you'll never come out of this. That's what he's feeling on the cross. And by faith, he relies on the promises from God's word prior to God's word that had been given him prior to what he is feeling right now on the cross. One of the problems many of us have is that we talk a good game, so to speak, about faith when the going is good. When things are going well, when the job is going well, when the paycheck's coming in, when the groceries are easy to find, and when people like us at church and there aren't any struggles going on with our friends or at church or in our family or whatever it may be, we have faith in God and we're so thankful for all of his blessings. But what about when you don't feel God's blessing. When a true trial comes, you've lost the job. You don't know where the paycheck's coming from. Maybe your spouse has walked out on you. Maybe you're having difficulty with your children, or maybe you're having some issue at church, and you don't see a way through it, humanly speaking. Do you go to God's word and claim his promises? Because that's what Jesus did on the cross. That's the faith of Jesus. And God's last day people who live through Jacob's time of trouble and who face a death decree and the mark of the beast crisis and that final crisis of earth's history will need a character maturity of faith so that when that crisis comes, God will be able to say, here they are. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And here's the amazing thing. God is going to look to the unlooking universe and he's going to be able to say, 
the everlasting gospel within the three angels' messages have produced a people who fear God and give glory to him in the hour of his judgment. It has produced a people who worship me, who live holy lives, who observe the seventh-day Sabbath and all the Ten Commandments, and they have been transformed in my likeness. And now that they are facing a death decree, just as I faced the death of the cross, the seed that I planted on the cross that seed of wheat that would produce a fruit of a great harvest in the likeness of the seed of Christ that was planted. Here they are. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are a group of people who endure the way Jesus endured the cross. Here are a group of people who have God's law written in their hearts and minds and who are living the the new covenant life as I live the new covenant life, and they keep the commandments of God. Here is a group of people who have the faith of Jesus that even though it seems as if the whole world is against them, they have faith to believe in the deliverance by God's power through the crisis that they are facing. And when God has that people, immediately he will put in the sickle, Christ will come to gather the precious grain. And that is the power of the third angel's message. And here's the thing that I want you to remember about this. The reason why the third angel's message has power, it's not because it says, if you worship the beast in his image, you're going to receive his mark and you're going to receive the outpouring of the wrath of God. That's not what gives its power. The reason that the third angel's message has power is because Jesus is the living embodiment of the third angel's message. He endured the cross. He lived an obedient life without spot or without fault. And he exercised faith while hanging on the cross. And so the third angel's message has power because it's not only a living embodiment of Jesus, it's the living embodiment of Jesus while he is hanging on the cross. And so the third angel's message has power for Adventism because what God is saying is I will produce a people, a generation at the end of the world with a character maturity who will become so like Christ, who will look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith, that they will become like him in character as he was while hanging on the cross. And that's justification by faith. That's righteousness by faith. That's the righteousness of God being revealed in our lives. And so I hope that that makes sense to you. I hope that it brings encouragement to you. I hope it really just enlightens you to realize that the third angel's message is the experience of Jesus on the cross that will be produced in our lives as we go forth to meet the the beast power at the end of the world. And so that's the experience that God is promising to give to each one of us if we have faith to believe in him. Amen? So that's where I'm going to conclude our study. And I want to thank all of you for being here for the study this evening. And again, it's it's so wonderful to to have Bible studies with my friends in California. It reminds me for sure of the of the Advent Hope days when we would have these studies at Advent Hope and sometimes in the in the care groups. But you know, God is continuing to raise up people in Loma Linda who are going to experience the third angel's message and be his witnesses at the end of the world. So I believe he's calling each one of you to be part of that. So we can um, move forward now to, um, to taking questions. Any questions? Um, so the question was asked, I've been enjoying your book on Daniel. Are you planning on writing a book on Revelation? Yes, I'm actually in Revelation chapter 10. Pray for me that I can 
be efficient. It's difficult to um, to write a book while you have a full-time practice. Um, but um, I can say this, let me grab this. If you want any other good books on Revelation, this is a book called An Enduring Vision, Revelation Revealed by Austin Cook. It's published by Teach Services. There's a couple little things that I see differently, but overall, it's a very solid book. It's historicist. You'll, if you read the whole book, you will know the book of Revelation better than almost any Seventh-day Adventist. So it's um, an enduring vision, Revelation Revealed by Austin Cook. He's from Australia. He's actually passed away. He wrote this book in his 90s. And so it's basically the experience of his whole ministry put together and very well well done. But in a, hopefully within a... Uh, Norman, we can't yeah. hear you. Oh, sorry. Oh, now we can. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Some Sometimes the internet connection can be a little bit spotty. So you can hear me okay? Okay. So the 144,000 are the first fruits to God in Revelation 14, 4, just as Christ was the first fruit. Does this mean that there will be others with the characteristics of the 144,000 and who will also have God's name on their foreheads? So, you know, I believe that the righteous, this is clear that, you know, they're all of the righteous in the kingdom will, will have God's character, but the 144,000 are a special group who you have an entire group, not just isolated characters here and there like Moses, Elijah, Enoch, um, who certainly have all those characteristics. Um, but the 144,000 are an entire group at the end of the world who have this characteristics. And so they, they will have these characteristics. So they will follow the lamb and serve God in the temple day and night. Um, and so they're a special people, but those who are um, saved throughout earth's history will, will also have God's character um, in, in the kingdom. But those who die before Jesus comes won't, won't have that special experience of being alive without seeing death. Another question um let's see um what does the beast represent again so okay good so good question so revelation 13 there's two beasts and the the primary beast is the first beast which has seven heads and ten horns and he has the mouth of a lion and um the the body of a leopard and the feet of a bear and that's a composite beast which represents the roman catholic church state power that then receives a deadly wound in 1798 and then you have the second beast which and so the first beast came up out of the sea that was the populated area of western europe you have the second beast which comes up out of the unpopulated area of north america and it's the second beast of protestant america that forms the image to the first beast which the image of the first beast is union of church and state the, re the reason it receives a deadly wound is because it lost the power as a church power over the state when napoleon had the Pope taken captive. And only when a Sunday law is enforced will that wound be totally healed. It's healing, but it won't be completely healed until there's a Sunday law. And so the image to the beast is bringing church and state back together. The mark of the beast is the Sunday law, because that's at the mark of its authority that it can enforce religious beliefs through the secular power. That's why it's the mark of the beast. Um, because the beast claims to have power over the state as a church power. And so that's the Roman Catholic church state power, but it's the United States of America, the Protestant America, apostate Protestantism, that will enforce that image. Um, but very good question. Uh, okay, sorry. I Okay, 
So the beast is, is there like a succinct way to say that? Yeah, so, so the, the, the beast is the papacy. Okay, thanks. It's the same thing as the little horn in Daniel 7. Um, good question. And you can show that, um, Aaron, because in Revelation 13, it says the, the lion has a mouth speaking great things. The lion represents Babylon, which is the end time papacy. And in Daniel 7, the little horn has a mouth speaking great things. So the little horn of Daniel 7 is the same thing as the beast in Revelation 13 that has the mouth of a lion speaking great things. And they both rule for 1260 years. Um, next question. Is there any relationship between the phrase, the faith of Jesus that we study today and the testimony of Jesus in Revelation 19.10, which says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's an excellent question. They're not exactly the same thing. The testimony of Jesus is making reference to the prophetic gift in God's last day church, um, whereas the faith of Jesus is actually describing the faith of Jesus that he had while living here on this earth. So the testimony of Jesus, Jesus speaks through his prophets, and the remnant church has the testimony of Jesus, so it has a prophet for the last days. Um, so the testimony of Jesus is different than the faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus is the faith that Jesus lived and exercised while alive on this earth. The testimony of Jesus is how Jesus speaks to us, and he speaks to us through his prophets. And specifically for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the testimony of Jesus is the writings of Ellen G. Wyatt. Um, Next question, this is from Kathleen and Diane. Could you possibly explain what the two, witness have, two witnesses have for us in the end times briefly? Well, the two witnesses are found in Revelation chapter 11. And um, the two witnesses represent the Old and the New Testament of, of Scripture. And we get that from... Um, a variety of scriptures, Isaiah 8, 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to the sword, is because there is no light in them. So you have the witness of the Old Testament. You have the witness of the New Testament. Um, John five thirty nine says, search the scriptures. These are they which testify of me. A witness testifies. So when Jesus referred to the scriptures, he was really referring to the Old Testament. But then, of course, the New Testament um, testifies of him clearly as well. So the Old Testament is a witness to Christ. The New Testament is a witness to Christ. They were burned in sackcloth and ashes. Their dead bodies were in the street um, in, during the French Revolution, but then they um, are caught up to God into his throne, and then they give testimony until the end of time. The Old and the New Testament are the two witnesses that will give us light all the way till Jesus comes. Um, will the 144,000 be higher in status in heaven? You know, um, in a, in a sanctified sense, yes, but remember that he who is greatest is, is he who is least, he who is servant. 144,000 are described as the servants of God. They will be God's servants. Um, they will serve God day and night in his temple. They will follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. That's not a privilege that is mentioned that will be afforded to, to the great multitude um, or to all of the saved throughout special um, status for those who live through the final crisis of Earth's history. Next question. Do you recommend the book Plain Revelation by Stefanovich? And I'll be blunt with you. No, I do not. That book is 
it follows a method that's called idealism, where it kind of mixes historicism with preterism and futurism. There's some truth in it, but there's other things that are not true. For example, he says the testimony of Jesus is the testimony of what Jesus does in our lives, and he completely ignores the idea that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He also has some very strange ideas about the trumpets and other things. So if you want to get confused, read that book. I'm not questioning his character. I I hear he's a very nice man, but I do not agree with the ideas in that book. So it's not a personal attack against him as a person. I just don't agree with his theological views in that book. So no, I do not recommend it. Um, Okay, another question. Um, how was the number 144,000? Can you re- briefly speak on the commonly asked question about its literal, literal versus metaphorical nature? So, 144,000 is described in Revelation chapter 7, where they are described as there are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Here's what we can clearly say is that the 12 tribes are symbolic because. 10 of the 12 tribes were lost to posterity by 723 BC, and you only have Judah and Benjamin left by the time of Christ. Paul came from the tribe of of Benjamin. Christ was from the tribe of Judah, and the the tribe of Judah and Benjamin together were known as the Jews. And so um, clearly you can't be describing literal Jews when it comes to the 144,000. So what I've said about the 144,000 is that it makes sense that the 12 sons of Israel would describe the 12 characteristics um, within those 12 sons and the characteristics of all of them are the characteristics common to all of humanity. And God is saying, no matter what your background or your baggage, I can take you and make you to be part of the 144,000. Now, whether or not, so here's one thing that we can say is that the 144,000, thousand are symbolic in the sense that the tribes of Israel are a symbolic people. It describes God's people. If you're a Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So that's symbolic in the sense that the 12 tribes themselves, I mean, we don't have a literal tribe of Simeon, for example. As far as the number being literal or symbolic, when I study Revelation, I'm not going to come right out and say the 144,000 is definitely a literal number. But what I would say is is that Scripture describes a remnant that are saved and that the way to salvation is narrow, few there be that find it. And I've said it like this, wouldn't it be amazing if there were 144,000 people on this earth right now that were just like Jesus? Because people try to say, oh, well, um, surely the 144,000 is symbolic and not literal because God wouldn't only save 144,000. And I'm not specifically getting to that line of reasoning per se, but these same people who push for the symbolic idea also will oftentimes push for the idea that we can't really overcome the way Jesus overcame. And my point is, is that how many people actually believe that you can overcome the way Jesus did? You know, if God could take 12 apostles and take the gospel to the known world at that time, Imagine what he could do with 144,000 people who were like him. Now, again, I'm not saying specifically that they're literal, but I don't think it's a great multitude that no man can number. Um, And then let's see. Um, And, you know, Ellen White also says that we shouldn't argue whether it's literal or symbolic, but just strive to be among that number because the character of the 144,000 is indisputable. So I, I hope that you don't come away from this just thinking about what I said about that. Think about the character of the 144,000, patience of the saints, keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, and how that parallels Jesus' experience on the cross. That's the most important thing. 
Um, and then someone said, if our founders did not comment on a simple in Revelation, how much emphasis should we put on the simple? For example, where the woman in Revelation is given two wings of a great eagle. You know, she flees into the wilderness and the eagle carries her there. Um, the eagle is um, is used... The, the eagle is, is like the king of the birds, so to speak. It's, it's also used to describe divine beings at time. So really, you can use that. The, the eagle is actually a, a representation of divine deliverance into the wilderness. That's how I see it. Um, and then it says, can we be part of the saved multitude or are we saved only if we are part of the 144,000? Here's what I would say. Um, if you are a Seventh-day Adventist, if you are not part of the 144,000, you will not be sealed. The purpose for Seventh-day Adventism is to be part of the 144,000. And then the 144,000 will call people out of Babylon to not receive the mark of the beast. And so the parable of the 10 virgins to me makes that clear that the wise virgins are the 144,000 who have the extra oil in their vessels with their lamps. The foolish virgins knew the truth. They had the Bible, but they didn't understand, or they didn't experience the truth as it is in Jesus, and so they um, they were lost. And then the hundred and forty-four thousand who are the wise virgins, they have the extra oil on their vessels with their lamps. They then receive the outpouring of the latter rain to give the loud cry message. And then, sometime after that, the bridegroom comes. They enter in with them to the marriage of the door. Shut. That's the close of probation, which happens after they give the loud cry message. But the foolish virgins come up to the door and say, let us in, and Christ says, I never knew you. So you have close of probation, which is death decree, and then you have the seven last plagues, Jacob's time of trouble, and then Jesus comes back. So if you're if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, don't think that you can somehow get by like, well, I'll just be part of the great multitude and I won't be part of the 144,000. If you're alive when Jesus comes, you're either part of the 144,000 or you're not saved. Now, if you die before Jesus comes, you'll be part of the special resurrection, but you won't be part of the 144,000 and then you'll be part of that great multitude, which no man can number. So that's my understanding. Now, there's some room for some differences on that and it's not a major salvational issue, but the main thing is, to have the character of the 144,000, to have the patience of the saints, to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And remember that Jesus planted that seed on the cross to produce the first fruits that would be like him. And someone said, will Seventh-day Adventist children be considered to be part of the 144,000 as well? You know, I, I don't say know that I have a perfect answer to that, but just remember that Mark forces that you have first the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. You can be perfect at every stage. So if a child is living up to everything that they know and they're surrendered, sure, I think they could be. But I do think that the 144,000 will be a people with character maturity. And this is that why many of the faithful will be taken to the grave before those times. It's possible. I mean, the Lord will lay the elderly and, the, and those who are weak and feeble, perhaps. We're told that that's going to happen, maybe the very young. Um, that that will happen just before Jesus comes back. It's it's a difficult thing to think about. But look, once you see the Sunday law crisis sit, you know that that Jesus is about to come, and so it's going to be you know a different time to be alive for sure once that happens. So yeah, it's twenty after. I mean, Vontier, are you good with that? Okay, so I'm going to offer a closing prayer. So thank you, everyone. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for the amazing three angels messages that you have given to us for this time of earth's history. And Lord, I just pray that we would be faithful, that we would 
experience the power of the everlasting gospel, that we would fear God, that we would give glory to you, that we would ever be mindful that we are living in the hour of your judgment and that we would worship you who has made heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. May we truly be out of Babylon in our heart, mind, and soul. And may we warn the world of what is to come so that we can bring as many people with us to the kingdom. And may someday soon heaven be able to say of each one of us through the faith and power of God, may they be able to say of us, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And may, may that day be soon. May we be found faithful. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.